Hello, I am Rachel Edidon. And I am Miles Stokes. And ordinarily, we would be getting ready to host an episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men. But as we are moving into our new home at Castle Sexy Dracula, we are not. Fortunately, we have two very good friends and noted experts who have agreed to take over and guest host this week's episode. So please lend your ears to L. Collins and Graham McMillan. Take it away, L. and Graham. Hey, L. What's up, Graham? You know how the beasts first started at gray and then it turned blue? Of course, unlike Dark Beast from the Age of Apocalypse, who's first stayed gray because it's a much more evil-looking color. Sure, sure, but where did 616 Beast's color change happen? I mean, was it when he was with the Avengers? No, it was actually before that. It happened on Patsy Walker's couch. Patsy Walker? You mean Hellcat, She-Hulk's friend? Yes, but this was before she was a superhero. She was just a grown-up former star of teen humor comics. She was basically... Marvel's answer to Archie back in the Golden Age, and then she grew up and married her childhood sweetheart, Buzz Baxter, and they both got involved in the Beast's solo stories. Wait, Buzz Baxter? Wasn't he the supervillain Mad Dog? Well, not at the time. He only became a supervillain after he and Patsy divorced, and his debut as Mad Dog was when he attacked her wedding to her second husband. Was her second husband a supervillain as well? Technically, he became one later, but he was a superhero when they got married. His name was Damon Hellstrom, and he was the Antichrist. The actual Antichrist. Well, as much as that's possible in Marvel Comics, he was just called the Son of Satan, and that's actually what he was. Why would a nice girl like Patsy Walker want to marry the Son of Satan? Well, to be fair, Damon was a decent guy at the time, and they were in love, and Patsy was really relieved from finding out that the devil had been lying when he told her he was her father too, which would have made her relationship with Damon incestuous. What?! I'm L. Collins, filling in for Rachel Edidin. And I'm Graham McMillan, filling in for Miles Stokes. And we're here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 69th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, a comprehensive guide to the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' most convoluted superhero soap opera. As you've probably heard, Rachel and Miles are moving this week, so we've taken over the podcasts temporarily and by request. Now, the last time I appeared on the show in episode 54, I talked very briefly about what three of the original X-Men, Iceman, Angel, and Beast, did in the years between leaving the X-Men and joining X-Factor. Today, we're going to zoom in and focus on the 1970s adventures of Hank McCoy, the Beast. Now, Hank was still a member of the X-Men in X-Men 66, which was the last new issue of the Silver Age run. But he was already gone when the original team went to Krakoa and Giant Size X-Men number one. He left during a period when the X-Men title was reprinting old stories to have a solo run in an anthology title called Amazing Adventures. The first ten issues of Amazing Adventures were split between Black Widow and the Inhumans. Remember when the Inhumans were interesting, but Marvel didn't really care about them? It's weird how it's the exact opposite now. (laughs) Anyway, the Beast took over with about issue 11 and started the book until issue 17, after which it was taken over by a guy named Kill Raven who fought Martians. So that brings us to Amazing Adventures number 11. This came out in March of 1972. It was written by Jerry Conway, who's not going to be the writer for most of this run, but he got it started. And it was drawn by Tom Sutton with inks by Sid Shores. And the credit box says Stanley Editor presents a new era in graphic art history because there's nothing like keeping things humble. Yeah, that's Stan for you. Now, the narration in this issue is one of the first things that you'll notice. It's very moody. It's sort of antagonistic to the characters, kind of in that early Claremont style, although, of course, this predates that. And it's also in second person. And it really emphasizes the feel that this is a horror comic book. 
it's actually very similar to books like Swamp Thing. Swamp Thing came out the same year, just a little bit after this. And it sort of was part of this trend of mixing superheroes and horror, which was a huge deal in the 70s. Characters like Werewolf by Night, Man-Thing, and even Tomb of Dracula. Now, when we first see Hank in this issue, he doesn't seem like the Hank that we've seen before. Not only does he look differently, he's furry, he's a monster more or less, but he also doesn't seem very in control of himself. There's a sense that he might be a monster now, inside as well as out. Or at least that's the direction he seems to be moving in after his transformation. Not only is there a sense that this is not the Hank we know, it's actually a little unclear for the first few pages if this is Hank McCoy. It isn't until, I think, page five that you get that it is Hank McCoy by name. Before that, it just seems to be this nameless monster who's moving through. Although the narration, which really is very Claremont's angry narrator prototype, makes clear that this is a monster that is on the move and dangerous and moving through the brand corporation. Right. Yeah. The brand corporation, where most of the story is set, is this huge super science compound. There are constantly scenes where characters walk by some sort of unexplainable super science happening in the background. And uh, it seems to be at least somewhat nefarious, and it's crawling with military. There are all of these military police and soldiers as guards who shoot at the beast and actually kill a guard who had apparently gone rogue, who the beast was chasing at the beginning. The story actually starts with the guard breaking into an area of the corporation and being stopped by the beast before being killed by other guards, before flashing back to Hank as we know him, leaving the X-Men, being the first X-Men we ever see to graduate the X-Men. Yes, and this is very much the Silver Age X-Men that we saw when the X-Men run ended, except that Havoc and Polaris aren't there, even though they really should be. They just don't care about Hank. Yeah, that must be it. They're just in their rooms avoiding him until he's finally gone. There is a very melodramatic era when you see Hank leaving the team. It actually says at one point, and when you drove away, you knew in your soul, it was forever, which isn't even vaguely true. (laughs) Yeah, this particular antagonistic narrator has no skill for prophecy. (laughs) So Hank leaves the school, not only because he's graduating, but because he's actually got a job. He is going to be working at the brand corporation for something that initially seems somewhat secretive, but you find out within the issue. He's doing a secret project that is looking into the origins of mutation itself. Right. When he first arrives at the Brand Corporation, he meets a couple of characters that are going to be somewhat important. One of them is Professor Carl Maddox. It's Artie's dad. Right. Or it will be when he turns back up in X-Factor. Except, of course, in this issue, something happens to make that slightly difficult, but we'll get there soon enough. Yes, indeed. The important thing for right now about Carl Maddox is that he's a real jerk. He is not a fan of Hank being there at all, and he's very happy to let Hank know that. But luckily, there's someone else there who is a fan of Hank being there, and that's Linda Donaldson, who's a lab assistant and soon-to-be femme fatale. Yeah, and immediately takes on her role as Hank's love interest for at least the first part of the story. And we see very cliched examples of her trying to distract Hank from his job by taking him for romantic walks on the beach. He falls for her amazingly quickly. Yes, yes, he does. Nevertheless, he is able, it seems like fairly quickly, to actually accomplish the goal of his research. He does very quickly find out the origins of mutation itself, which is never really referenced again after this story. Yeah, the actual research that he was doing here doesn't ever seem to have been followed up on. He says, I've finally diluted the precipitate. This is the hormonal extract, the chemical cause of mutation. It seems sort of broad, doesn't it? The chemical cause of mutation. I like that also, you'll never find anyone ever referencing this before, even as the origins of mutation are discussed by so many other characters and so many other villains. They could just look back and look at Hank's notes. 
yeah, at this point, he's able to hold the chemical cause of mutation in an Erlenmeyer flask. <laughs> Which is very handy for what happens next. After it, Hank indeed. finds out uh, the cause of mutation and in fact isolates it in this flask, he goes down the hallway and finds out that Carl Maddox is talking to a mysterious Agent 9 who's reporting back that Hank has found what he was looking for and basically that they're going to steal it. Right. And he wants to deal with this, but he doesn't want to put on his beast costume because he has such a distinctive build and he's in such a specific place that everyone will be able to figure out that it's him. So he makes what I think is one of the most questionable decisions (laughs) in the history of probably all of comics which is that he drinks his Erlenmeyer flask of the chemical cause of mutation, basically to disguise himself, (laughs) because he doesn't know what it will do to him, but he knows it will turn him into something else. And then within an hour, he'll be able, in theory, to drink an antidote and turn back into his usual self. I like that the narrator just makes fun of this plot point within the story itself. You didn't have to, but the newly discovered ego, which you now controlled, told you differently. You took the hormonal extract and you changed. <laughs> yes. He becomes a gray, furry creature. And there's a real sense that it's not just his body that changed, which, which is sort of the story that we get in later recountings of how this happened. In this story, there's a real sense that his mind and his personality transform as well. Yeah, which is one of the things that actually is his downfall in this issue. He drinks the formula believing that if he drinks the antidote within an hour, he'll be fine only to realize that his sense of time changes when he becomes this furry beast as well. So he misses his hour. Right, which basically leads him to go on a um, an emotional rampage and attack Maddox pretty uh, brutally. Yeah, in this issue, and it, it lessens in later issues, but in this issue, the beast is a beast. He is something that's out of control, and he, when he gets emotional, He just loses control and he acts entirely emotionally and not logically. There's very much a classic horror separation between man and monster. Yes, very much so. But he is pulled off of Maddox uh, in this issue by the guards who leave Maddox pretty much an emotional wreck as Hank jumps off, very concerned that he did almost kill a man and escapes, only for the mysterious Agent 9 to show up, who it turns out is Linda Donaldson, who kills Carl Maddox. Right. Big twist ending. And yes, Carl is dead. Even though Carl will later show up, like 10, 15 years later in X-Factor with a child, Carl is killed at the end of this issue. Yeah. When I first reread this issue, I was like, wait, I thought this was Artie's dad, but maybe that was his brother or something. But no. (laughs) And I read it thinking, well, maybe she didn't really kill him. Maybe she just shot him somewhere else. Because it is a 1970s comic. You just hear the gunshot. You don't see where she shot him. She could have just shot him in the knee, shot him in the arm just to punish him. But in Amazing Adventures number 12, the next issue, she pretty much says, I straight up killed him. She's very direct about it. There's one other thing that I want to bring up because I think it's interesting, which is that in this issue, when the beast mutates into his new form, he appears to be completely immune to being shot. He has this healing factor Several times he will get shot and bullets will hit him and then the wounds will just go away. Can we talk about the fact that the beast at this era is a proto-Wolverine? Not only does he have the Wolverine haircut years before Wolverine, but he has the man who loses control and becomes an animal and the healing power. That's a really good point. I hadn't really thought about that. But yeah, he's very much like Wolverine and 
multiple ways in the story. And yet that fades even with the next issue. Amazing Adventures issue 12 has the wonderful title of Iron Man DOA. And it is a story, spoilers, in which the Beast kills Iron Man. Right. The first page of issue 12 is a wonderful splash page to a horror comic. Kind of has that Bernie Wrightson Swamp Thing look to it. I want to say that uh, issue 12 is also the arrival of a writer called Steve Englehart on the series who writes the remaining issues of this series. And Englehart is an unsung hero in X-Men mythology. When the X-Men title itself was reprinting stories, he handled the X-Men in a number of places. He writes this Beast Solo series and then he brings the characters into Captain America and Avengers. There's a hidden X-Men mythology between 1972 and 1976 where he writes a fairly extended story that includes Richard Nixon killing himself in the White House. <laughs> to me, Steve Englehart almost is Marvel in the 70s. He writes such wonderful self-aware dialogue. There's actually a line in this comic where it's terrible and wonderful at the same time. It's so wonderfully unreconstructed pre-feminist, but done oh, with yeah. such a snarky way. <laughs> They're like, oh, <laughs> he knows what he's doing. Englehart is this wonderful, wonderful writer that I kind of wish he got to write the X-Men at some point. Yeah, I completely agree. I love his run on the Avengers. So this issue actually opens up with a flashback to what had happened the previous issue and explaining what had happened with the Beast. And even in the first couple of pages, it feels more like a superhero comic again. The second person narration is gone. You no longer have the narrator accusing the Beast of being a monster, of being inhuman, of being out of control. You have a 1970s superhero comic. It also reintroduces in the present the Beast's connection with the X-Men via Professor X attempting to contact him. Although uh, he tries to contact him through Cerebro, which is all of a sudden a television which they use to contact the Beast with. But the Beast, I guess he's got enough going on right now and he doesn't want to deal with that at all. And he sort of lashes out at the Professor and says, I'm not your X-Men, Professor. I'm my own man. Hank is such an idiot in this story. He's so stubborn. Even just before Professor X reaches out to him, he says, maybe I should think about contacting Professor X. I have mutated another time. And as soon as Professor X reaches out, he's like, nope, not for me, thanks very much. I've got a solo series now. This is what I'm doing. Right. But he is entirely a resourceful idiot because he then breaks into a costume shop and a library, stealing a book called The Art of Makeup so that he can build a human disguise for himself out of latex and some random costuming, including this weird contraptions with lots of straps to make his body look more human. Yeah, there will, of course, be a picture in the companion post, but this thing that he only uses as an Amazing Adventures, I don't think it ever comes up again, but he has this weird harness that sort of forces him to stand up straight so that he doesn't have that, like, crouch. And it looks so painful and awful. Well, the dialogue really emphasizes that as well. And it's kind of the first time where you get the idea that trying to pretend to be human for the X-Men is a problem. Even in the Silver Age, you had the angel pretty much just folding his wings up underneath his jacket. And it seemed to be completely fine. He didn't seem to be bothered by that at all. And here you have Hank, I mean, saying things like, everything's going black, but I won't quit, not now. And clearly in pain as he's doing this to himself. It's the first time you get the idea that there's a cost to being an X-Man beyond, I really have to keep my sunglasses on. Yeah, that's really true. It really shows the amount of effort that it can take to pass as a normal person and how uncomfortable that can be. And that really follows through because you then cut to the brand corporation where Hank is working with his latex mask, which is apparently good enough to fool lots of scientists. No one at any point says, you look like you're wearing a mask, Hank. 
Yeah, I think it's one of the universal truths of comic books that latex masks are way more effective than they are in reality. It's unstable molecules latex. That's the only explanation. Yeah, that has to be it. But he runs into Tony Stark, who is, again, with wonderful comic book tropeness, uh, going from an arms dealer to looking for something else to do with his companies. So he's checking out chemical industries and the origins of mutation. Because why not? He actually says, I'm looking for new directions to move my company in, so I'm checking out other types of industries. Because again, that's how corporations work in the Marvel Universe. I made guns, now what if it just become a chemical company? That, that's a company, right? That, that's what they do. Well, this is the early 70s, so there was sort of a conflation between arms companies and chemical companies. So Linda comes in and interrupts Hank's meet with Tony and immediately is... I'm a femme fatale, I'm a villain, what if I get Tony Stark in my side? But she doesn't really push it, which is really interesting. She then excuses herself with the line that both of us were talking about. A girl's got to expect to take a backseat to business. It's in my Norman Mailer's handbook for unliberated women. Which is either absolutely offensive or genius, and I still can't work out which. I know, I can't quite figure out what Steve Inglehart means by it, and I'm not 100% certain what Linda means by it either. But she clears off as in like, you boys play with your toys. I'll be back later to be a femme fatale. And something that I didn't know, because I have not read Iron Man stories of this era, is that he, at the time, had a psychic fiancé. Because what superhero doesn't need a psychic fiancé? Why did they write that out of the comic? <laughs> Iron Man and his psychic fiancé is a series I would read right now. I agree. Like She seems like she's good to have around for him. But she really is, because she pretty much says, that Linda's up to no good. I don't trust her, which causes Hank to freak out. Hank gets yeah. very, very upset and storms out saying, I would much rather talk to my girlfriend than you, Mr. Tony Stark. Right. There's another line that I feel like really uh, brings back the sense of horror from the, uh, the previous issue where Hank thinks, my blood pounding through my temples. I'm, I'm losing control of the beast in my brain. Yeah, it's one of the few callbacks. And in fact, this of the six issue run of this, the Beast Solo series, this is the second and last time you'll ever get the idea that being the Beast might actually be a problem. Right, yeah. Because what happens is Tony is so concerned by his fiance saying, I don't trust that Linda, that he comes back to the brand corporation as Iron Man that night. Coincidentally, just as Hank is bouncing about being the Beast. And both of them do the traditional, I don't know who you are, you must be a bad guy, and have a fight. Right. And the fight gets out of hand, and then it seems to get more and more out of hand. And Hank loses control and says, I won't die, Iron Man. Not until I've killed you with my bare hands. And he's very concerned at this point with being the hero. There's this strange subtext becoming text moment where he actually says, in this fight, I'm the hero and you're the enemy. Right. He seems very, very concerned with, I'm not a monster. I'm doing the right thing. The problem being, he then kills Iron Man. Right, which would seem to make him the villain of this story. And and he realizes that himself. He kills Iron Man and then he just bails. He jumps out a window horrified by what he's done. But of course, as soon as he's gone, it turns out that things didn't actually happen that way at all. Iron Man is actually fine. And Iron Man seems very confused about what happens. He says, he seems to go into a trance. He stood there all alone for a second and then he ran off. And it turns out that this is because of some people that we've seen before. Standing outside the brand corporation, as you do, just out for an evening stroll, is Mastermind, The Blob, and Eunice the Untouchable, a.k.a. three-fifths of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. 
Yes, because it's time for an X-Men villain reunion. That takes us directly into Amazing Adventures number 13, which begins with Mastermind explaining that he didn't just trick the Beast into thinking he'd killed Iron Man. He also wiped his memory to make him easier to control, I guess. The opening of issue 13 is hilarious. It actually starts with Mastermind saying the title of the issue, which is evil is all in your mind. <laughs> and he just exclaims it as in like, this is my mission statement, you guys. Evil is all in your mind. I am Mastermind. Guess what, you guys? I am evil. I feel like Mastermind is much more Dracula-like in this story than he usually is. And he's much more of a threat. Really, with the exception of maybe the Dark Phoenix saga, Mastermind is played as pathetic more often than not. And, and yet in this story, he is the master planner who almost gets away with it. Yeah. And I feel like this is the only time the Mastermind was ever in charge of anything, because he was secondary to Magneto in the original Brotherhood, and then, of course, he was never the top guy in the Hellfire Club. But here, like, he's reforming the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants with himself very much at the top. And he also does the one thing that I think all the readers wanted him to do, which is drop the word evil from the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. He calls them the Brotherhood of Mutants here, which is a much better name. Yes, it really is. And that was what they did in the movies. And I had always thought that it started there, but this is apparently the original appearance of that name. He also does it because he interacts with the Beast, who has at this point lost his memory, and basically says, you're a freak, I'm a freak too. Why don't you come out and we'll be freaks together? I firm this Brotherhood. We are literally a freak show. We have a carnival. We have a circus, you guys. Come and join us and we'll be freaks together. Yeah, and the pages where he takes Hank to the freak show or to the to the carnival are filled with these really bizarre looking background characters who never do anything, who never have a role in the story. There's a real sense that there is this whole population of freaks who may or may not be actual mutants just hanging out. It is kind of hilarious because he pretty much is like, or artist Tom Sutton, I should say, is the freaks are lots of sad clowns. Basically, yes. When you see the freak show, there are a lot of clowns just grimacing at the camera. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but one of the things that Mastermind does when he's talking to this beast is check, you're not the X-Man, the beast, right? And the beast says, I'm hazy on a lot of things, but I'm sure if there ever was another beast, he was nothing like me. And you're not quite sure from that dialogue whether Hank remembers who he used to be or is just that concerned that he is a freak and he is alone and he is solo. It's the question of when Hank remembers in this story is very, very, very vague. Even by yeah. the end of the story, there's no scene where he goes, I remember everything, which is really strange. Yeah, there's a scene later where the narration is sort of vaguely talking about him piecing the pieces back together, but it never really talks about it specifically in terms of memory. More importantly, though, this issue features the arrival of two characters, one of whom is, I want to say, both of our favorite character from the Beast series that isn't the Beast. Buzz Baxter appears with his wife, Patsy, or Pat, as she is in this issue. Right, and the way that they're introduced here you wouldn't know that they were characters who had already existed, who came from somewhere else, unless you just happened to know the comics that they were originally from, and then you might recognize their names and Patsy's hair color. It's a very strange thing, because at this point, this is Patsy Walker's second ever appearance in a Marvel Universe comic. She appeared in a Fantastic Four annual, I think annual two or annual three, wherever Reed and Sue get married, she's there. And that's it until this point. Previous to this, she'd appeared in Millie the Model, and that was the only place she'd appeared. 
Well, in her various, her own titles. But sure, yes. but not the Marvel Universe titles. And so she shows up here with Buzz as as his wife and fairly low-key. You get the idea that Buzz is the main character. Buzz shows up, a captain in the Air Force who's coming to investigate what's been happening in the Brand Corporation. And speaking of characters from Marvel history, there's someone else mysterious who shows up at this point. We can see that she's a woman wearing glasses, but we can't really get a good look at her. And Engelhart shows why his version of the omniscient narrator is so much better than the angry narrator from the first issue. Because instead of saying, who is this woman? He goes, who is this strange girl? And what is her interest in her hero? Well, she might be Carol King or Indira Gandhi or your sister, but she's probably not. (laughs) (laughs) You don't actually find out who she is until the very end of this run. And even then when you do, it's weirdly downplayed. With this issue, Engelhart really sets up a number of running plots that don't get resolved. Yeah, there's a real sense that he was building for a lot of things that never quite happened. With the main plot, however, Beast, still an amnesiac to the best of our knowledge, is convinced by Mastermind that he should steal the world's biggest diamond. And Mastermind is being literal. He explains that he has actually checked the dimensions of this diamond, and it is literally the biggest diamond in the world. He has a wonderful scheme. He is going to make people think they're buying it with his illusionary powers. They're going to actually feel and investigate the real diamond. They will pay him for it, and then he will make them believe that the illusion they are buying is the real thing. This is actually such a good mastermind plan that I don't know why he ever does anything else. Why be in the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants when you could just be the world's greatest art thief and just sell people the same painting a dozen times? Exactly. He could do, like, the greatest real estate scam. Yeah, you know, for real. Look at this wonderful mansion, everyone. You bought this mansion. And then he just disappears. He would be the world's greatest con man. Mastermind Con Man, again, is a series I would read from Marvel. Oh, for sure. But he seems much more well-suited to it than to, you know, attempt to... I don't know, help Magneto conquer the world exactly. or whatever the Brotherhood was doing. Doing anything else Mastermind has ever shown doing. Th- right, this is This yes. is true calling. But I guess by the end of the issue, you see why this doesn't really work out. He manages to convince Beast that he should steal it. The problem being, Beast has an attack of conscience midway through and thinks, maybe I shouldn't be stealing things. Right, and this seems to lead to him regaining his sense of who he is. And it definitely leads to him turning on Mastermind of the Brotherhood and fighting and ultimately winning by giving himself over to his animal side. But even when he gives himself over to his animal side, he's still wisecracking. This is a very different beast, even from two issues earlier. Oh, for sure, yeah. The only time he gives in to his animal side is when he confronts Mastermind himself, and that is because giving into your animal side means you can't be confused by illusions. And when Mastermind finds himself unable to control the beast, when he loses this fight, his mind basically snaps... And he is sort of being overtaken by his own illusions. He's reacting to things that aren't there and basically cowering. It is really a a foreshadowing of what happens at Dark Phoenix Saga. There seems a sense of the only way really to defeat Mastermind is to maybe not drive him insane. That sounds a bit too sadistic, but definitely push him to a point where he is not really in control of his own powers. Yeah, it is weird that... Basically, the thing that Phoenix did in the Hellfire Club story that was presented at that time as like the real sign that she was going over the deep end, the Beast does the same thing to Mastermind here, basically effortlessly. And it's pretty much downplayed. The Beast drives Mastermind insane and then just calls the police and says, hey, you guys, there's an insane supervillain here. You might want to pick him up. He's got a diamond. Right. 
Yeah, the morality of the Beast series in general is very, very strange. It is very much a 1970s series where the edges of superherodom are kind of blurry. Yeah, definitely. It is the monster superhero thing that I was talking about before. It fits in very well with that, I feel like. With issue number 14, we sort of get back to the full-on superherodom. Hank does the thing that you might have expected him to do a bit earlier, which is go and tell Iron Man that, you know, are you still alive? Because I really thought I killed you. Right. And Iron Man is surprisingly friendly to the Beast, considering what their first encounter was like. He's not only surprisingly friendly. At one point, a guard shoots the Beast, which may be a bit much, but is understandable, seeing as the last time Iron Man saw the Beast, he was trying to kill him. And Iron Man instead is like, you shot the Beast? You're fired. I don't want anyone to try and defend me. I'm Iron Man. I was a little confused about Iron Man firing Stark Industries employees while he's Iron Man. Iron Man has special privileges, honestly. They're like, you can just imagine Tony Stark that afternoon, or Iron Man as Tony Stark that afternoon being like, oh yeah, I meant to tell you, I've given Iron Man hiring and firing privileges. I should have told you guys that. It's fine. Right. Like I said, I haven't read a lot of these old Iron Man comics, but I think that Iron Man was officially the head of security for Stark Industries. So I suppose he would have hiring and firing privileges over the security guards. Also, the way he fires him is hilarious. He fires him by crushing his gun in front of him. <laughs> it's like, you wouldn't need that anymore. You're fired. <laughs> but having made peace with Iron Man, Beast then goes home only to find out that he doesn't have his human disguise. Because obviously, as we saw in issue 12, he left it at Brand Industries. He has not been Hank McGoy since he was brainwashed into thinking that he was a monster by the mastermind. So he's left with nothing in case anyone comes over and wants to see Hank, which of course is exactly what happens. Right, specifically Linda shows up at his door. Leading to a wonderfully hilarious scene that really speaks to the weirdness of this series. Hank has a prototype mask that he decided he couldn't wear because the neck was ripped. And that is all he has. So what does he do? He gets into his pajamas, puts on the mask, and then tells Linda that he's sick so she can't come anywhere near him. Right. And he also has to keep his hands in the pocket of his robe because they're gray claws at the moment because he doesn't have his gloves either. And there is a wonderful panel of him with his hands in his pockets, wearing a dressing gown and, of course, a cravat to cover up his neck. Looking very casual and sort of like, I'm just hanging out like Hugh Hefner here, trying to get rid of Linda, who is all over him. He makes up a story that he's sick, saying, I do have a pretty bad cold. <laughs> also, it's contagious. You have to leave, which is wonderful. And so he sends her away. And then, because again, it's a Marvel comic, has a moment of angst, which causes him to destroy a table and then go, why can't I love? Why must I be a monster? Only to decide in traditional Spider-Man style, that the best way to cure this is to jump out of a window. The problem being, that's when the mysterious woman from the previous issue shows up. And Specifically she, at his door, not at his window. And she is very, very concerned. You still don't know who this woman is, but she says, he has to be here. There's almost no time left before doomsday. Please, Hank, please answer the bell. My life depends on it. Spoilers, everyone. Steve Angerhart has no idea where this plot is going. So anything this mysterious woman says between now and the end of the series, pretty much disregard, because it's yeah. not going to lead anywhere. No, not anywhere interesting anyway. So Hank shows up at Brand Corporation and, of course, runs into the soldiers who are defending it, only to bounce away just as Buzz and Pat show up. So the Beast is able to get back to his Hank disguise. And by the way, it's 
pretty weird that in this environment with all of this suspicious security and Linda being an actual spy, that he can leave his Hank McCoy costume at Brand and no one will find it. Well, not only that, we know that Linda's trying to steal his research. Right. So how is he able to leave anything there and no one discovers it? Right. Like, she clearly should have been ransacking his entire office and workspace the whole time that he was missing. I kind of love the idea that she is an evil secret agent who nonetheless is really respectful about privacy. (laughs) She's like, I can't go in there. He locked it. That's his office. I'll just wait until he comes back and then I'll seduce him and he'll invite me in. Maybe she's a vampire. I wouldn't rule it out. (laughs) Do you see her in any mirrors? This is headcanon. She is a vampire. Vampire secret agent. Vampire secret agent Linda Donaldson. (laughs) So Hank then shows up as Hank to interact with Buzz and Pat and tries to explain where he's been. The problem being, he lies and says that he's been with Linda and Linda just outright says, no, you haven't. And this is one of my favorite Linda moments because it's so ridiculous where Hank confronts Linda immediately after this about the fact that she wouldn't give him an alibi. And she says, I couldn't lie to an Air Force officer. I love my country. And then immediately thinks, true enough, I do love my country, you fool. But it just happens that it's not America. Which again, will lead nowhere. Right. When we actually find out who Linda is a spy for, it is in fact not a foreign country. It is something far more exciting, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. (laughs) What's really interesting about this issue is all this has taken us up to page, I want to say 10 of the issue. When the quote unquote real bad guy of the issue shows up, it's kind of a letdown. You want to see more of the continuing story. You don't want to see the villain. Yeah, I completely agree. And this particular villain is such a weird choice a villain that nobody has ever really cared about (laughs) who came from a completely unrelated story and just sort of seems to show up here so that you can have someone who can be mistaken at a distance for the beast. So the villain is a villain called Quasimodo. If you've never heard of Quasimodo, that's okay. Most people haven't. He had appeared one time before in Fantastic Four Annual Issue 4. He was a living computer who was brought to life by the Silver Surfer. And for some reason, even though he's a living computer, called Quasimodo and given a body that had a hump like the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Inexplicable, but he had a theme and he was sticking to it. (laughs) Well, you know, that's sort of like what happens to the Beast. The Beast was just a guy and then mutates into an actual Beast in this run. And Quasimodo was just a computer who happened to be named Quasimodo and then became a Hunchback. And Quasimodo has a lot of issues. He starts off telling Hank that he is superior to him, that the Beast is just a monster, whereas he is a superior computer brain and a powerful body, before very quickly breaking down and going, but you're alive and I'm not, and killing himself. Is that actually the end of Quasimodo, or did he... Oh, he comes back. He's yeah, When I a supervillain throws did. himself off a building, you can pretty much assume that he's going to come back. But he doesn't <laughs> come back often, because again, nobody really cares about Quasimodo. Yeah, there's really not much to him that's interesting. And I guess I can't feel too bad for saying it because he is an artificially constructed computer. He's just really ugly in a way that's not (laughs) at all appealing, even for a monstrous villain. But he does have a great end scene. He throws himself off by saying, it is I, the vampire machine, the inhuman machine, the machine that must die. That should have been the end of Quasimodo because it's not going to get better from that. I think that was probably his peak as a character. And then that really is the end of the issue. Quasimodo pretty much comes on because you get the feeling that Engelhart thought, I should have a fight at some point. I really just filled the first half of the issue up with subplots. 
I should bring in a bad guy that no one cares about. So that leads us into issue 15, which is where Hank begins to become even more the beast that we come to know him as. It begins with Patsy Baxter opening the door to the apartment that she shares with Buzz. And Hank basically collapses into the door and on top of her. She manages to get him onto the couch where he basically lays there and has a flashback of everything that's happened up to this point. Which is so wonderful. First of all, I don't know why Hank showed up at her door. That's never explained. He just collapses on her and he's like, I should let all the readers get up to date on what's happened so far in this series. And in doing so, really shows the series flaws. Because he's like, I became a monster and then I met some random villains. Right. And I can only assume because when he wakes up, Patsy reveals that she knows everything about him now because he talked in his delirium. So I assume when he's having this flashback, he's actually narrating it out loud. Yeah, all the narration that he has in the flashback, he's saying out loud, which is the greatest thing. I just love the idea that Hank just talks in sleep that much. That, right. Uh, you know, imagine all the students at the Xavier school being like, how are we going to get this exam? How are we going to pass? Wait, let's just stick a microphone in Professor McCoy's bedroom. He'll just tell us all the answers while he's asleep. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not the only thing that happens when he wakes up. When he wakes up, his fur is a different color. Right. And it's actually a little questionable what color it is, because in this book, his fur has turned black, but it's black with blue highlights in the classic style of Superman's hair. And, and, and eventually it will just turn blue. Right. Basically, this is when the beast turns blue, but it sort of happens by accident because it wasn't written as him turning blue, but it never really is. He turns black and then later everyone retroactively decides that actually he turned blue. I have a theory about this, which I'll get to later when he shows up and has another revelation about himself. But okay. for now, let's leave it as, let's just pretend that he's black. Let's just pretend that his fur has turned black. There's never any real explanation given for this either. He collapsed delirious. We don't know why. And then when he wakes up, his fur is a different color. That's all we know. And that's all the explanation we'll actually get. It's true. Well, this also seems to be the point when he loses his healing factor. Because he talks in the story about losing some of the powers that he's had. And I don't think we ever see him shrugging off bullet wounds after this point. Mm -hmm. And also, so, we never see him lose control again. Right. So you and could it, look at the first three issues of this run as being a transformative sequence that he then right. settles into. Well, it seems to have something to do with, even though this is never discussed, his battle with Quasimodo at the end of issue 14. Quasimodo is attempting to like physically suck out Hank's life force. And he talks about becoming less powerful as he's fighting Quasimodo. So the impression that I got is that whatever Quasimodo was doing to his physiology is what had this effect of sort of finalizing his mutation and settling him into this slightly less powerful but more controllable beast form, which also happens to be a different color for some reason. I think we should stick to that, even though I think you're giving it so much more thought than anyone involved in the comic actually gave it. <laughs> I feel like that's what comics fandom is all about exactly and no prize to you l <laughs> the meat of this issue actually starts with the next scene however where we see that the x-men who we saw a few issues ago trying to contact hank and being rebuffed are reading a newspaper and going there's this strange beast-like creature hanging around where hank is it's probably beast yeah there are literally headlines about a beast at the brand corporation and these people all know that their friend the beast went to work at the brand corporation and this is a scene which gives Rachel's theory that Professor Xavier is a dick great evidence. Because while Angel is, we should go and visit him. 
we should find out what's going on. Professor Xavier's just like, nope, I tried to talk to him. He's told me to leave. Let's just leave him alone. He's on his own. He's his own man now. It really is bitter Professor Xavier just being like, ah, no, he was nasty to me. He left. He graduated. Whatever. Yeah. I have to say, by the way, that I'm completely on Rachel's side on this. Professor Xavier is a total dick. And this is a great example of that. I like Professor Xavier until he becomes a dick. I don't think he was always a dick. But at this point, let's just go with dick. It's a dick move, Chuck. Let's just leave it at that. But fortunately, Angel does not listen. He flies off to investigate the beast at the brand corporation. But he doesn't actually put on his costume he wears like dress pants and dress shoes and no it's shirt. so great, right? He's like, listen, I could put on a costume, but I look much hotter if I just take off my shirt. Let, right. Like, let's do that. It's almost as if it's to fit this new sort of tone that the Beast has where he's not exactly a superhero. He's, you know, a monster that runs around in little shorts. So it sort of makes sense if Angel's going to show up in the story for him to be a shirtless guy in regular pants with wings. And what's really strange is this is actually the Beasts series is the second solo series of an X-Man at this point, because Angel had a three issue run of a backup in Kazar a year before this started, which also tried to pull him out of the X-Men and pull him out of a superhero. And it pretty much went nowhere. It was dropped very quickly, but that is where his parents died. And that's where he became a millionaire. That, in, you in were that telling me run. a thing that I honestly did not know about at all. I've never heard it's of that. It's never been reprinted. It's never been reprinted. It's the strangest thing. You'd think that with, it's actually a very important story for Angel and it's never been reprinted. No one knows about it, but it's where his parents died and it's where he becomes rich. And it's, again, try to take Angel out of the team and make him into a solo star and just flopped horrendously. So when Angel shows up here and again, tries to leave the team and have a life outside the team, it's really interesting that he does so without the costume. Yeah. So as he's flying towards the beast as he's trying to find hank hank is attacked by the griffin how do you explain the griffin beyond he's a weird cartoonish villain who also happens to have wings like angel yeah he works great as a villain in this issue because he really is sort of like this version of beast and the angel sort of squished together because he's sort of this furry monster man with claws who also has big feathery wings but there is a great moment where angel comes across the fight But because he doesn't recognize Hank, and because he's never seen the Griffin before, he has no idea who's the good guy. So he's just like, I'm going to hang back and see who's in trouble. Problem is, who's in trouble is the Griffin, and so that's who he tries to help. Right, but the Griffin then attacks him, and Angel falls, and Hank rescues him and reveals that he's Hank. Which is a lovely moment, because, you know, as you saw with the Iron Man scene a few issues back, you have a superhero tradition of, I don't recognize you, let's fight. Whereas Hank does the logical thing of say, hey, you know me. I just happen to look like this right now. Right. Which Warren really takes in stride. Yeah, he is really not bothered by it. He's pretty much like, yeah, I, they said there was a beast figure roaming around. I figured it was probably you. <laughs> right. There, there's hey. actually a great line when Hank is, is talking about being this character now, uh, where he says, when I gained this new body, I gained a new life along with it. And I guess a new lifestyle. The old ways just didn't seem to fit anymore. There was so much weird code in the transformation of Hank. N- not only here, but also later on when he joins the Avengers. Where it's like, it's not just that he's become furry. There's some sort of analogy for a lifestyle change or something else that goes beyond the superhero norm. Yeah, well, it's interesting because Steve Englehart puts all of this effort into sort of explaining that he's changing Hank's personality. 
when you sort of feel like at this point in comics, he could have just written Hank's personality different and it would have been fine. But he really makes the effort to have Hank say, my personality is changing. Well, it's something Engelhardt really makes an effort to do. I mean, he brought back Patsy Walker and Buzz, who are fairly obscure characters. And he, he brought back Quasimodo, who's a very obscure character as well. He brought back Mastermind and the Blob and Eunice. He really is, you get the feeling that he's a fan who's trying to make all this stuff work for the other fans. So he couldn't just say, things are different now. He's not a fan of the retcon as much of, I'm going to make all the connective tissues so that this fits together. Right. At this point, we cut away to once more see the mystery woman who's continuing to up the ante saying, I missed him again, and time's almost run out. I think now we're all going to die. Again, no, we're not. I just want to say that, Mystery Woman, you were so melodramatic. I get the idea that, you know, if she burnt the toast in the morning, it would also be the end of the world. I can't eat this. No, nothing will be the same. (laughs) She's like that uh, psychologist on The Simpsons whose line is, May God have mercy on our souls. (laughs) Meanwhile, while Mysterious Woman is being completely melodramatic, Linda is finally revealing who she's working for. And Linda is working for the Secret Empire. This probably meant nothing to any of the readers at the time, but to fans now who are familiar with Captain America stories, you know that Linda, because she's working with the Secret Empire, she's working for Richard Nixon. Right, because in the Marvel Universe, Richard Nixon was a supervillain. As we will get to very, very quickly. Let's instead turn right now to Hank and Warren, who are trying to explain to Captain Baxter what's been going on. Where has Hank been? Right. And Hank's answer is basically that he's been partying with his old friend that randomly showed up in town, Warren Worthington. And Captain Baxter does not believe this, understandably, because it is the flimsiest of excuses. But here's the thing. Patsy then backs them up. Right. Patsy completely lies to construct an alibi which had something to do with the mysterious talk that she had with Hank when Hank woke up in her apartment. And this also really foreshadows just how bad the Patsy and Buzz marriage is. Which is a theme that Engelhart will come back to later. But also, Engelhart really makes a point of lampshading this and saying, something happened in the conversation with Patsy and Hank that I didn't show you. And we'll come back to this later, he says. He will, but it will take three years. Right. And then what it is will be pretty weird. (laughs) It's true. It turns out to be one of the stranger solutions to any plot hole in (laughs) any comic. So this enables Hank to get out of trouble so that he and Warren can have their showdown with the Griffin, which is a pretty generic fight scene. But I'm a big fan of how it ends, which is basically that Hank defeats the Griffin by giving him a big hug. It's true. Uh, You can't fly anymore because I'm hugging you and you can't use your wings. Right, because he has such long arms, he's able to uh, hug the griffin's wings to his back, which, of course, makes him drop like a rock. Hank and Warren pretty much make up and say, hey, let's be friends again, leaving Hank to decide. I should probably catch up with some of the many subplots I've got. I'm going to return these books I stole back in issue 12 to the library. In doing so, he finally runs into the mystery woman leaving us with a great cliffhanger where he says, you? Right, a cliffhanger that is not followed up on at all. Yeah, so the cliffhanger is followed up on with uh, issue 16, the final issue of the run, which skips some distance ahead in terms of time and tells an entirely different type of story. It's the strangest issue. 
Yeah, it really is. It comes out of nowhere. So it's a Rutland issue. Rutland in the 1970s, Rutland is a town in Vermont, had a Halloween festival which was superhero themed. Because of this, there are many Rutland comic stories in Marvel and DC Comics of the time. They're in Avengers, they're in Justice League, and they're an excuse for the comic creators to cameo in their own stories. So in this issue, you have Roy Thomas, Jerry Conway, Len Wein, and Glynis Oliver all show up and give Hank and the mystery woman who is incredibly unceremoniously revealed to be Vera, his ex-girlfriend from the X-Men series, a ride to Vermont on their way to Canada. Right. It's interesting when we find out that the mystery woman is Vera, that not only is there not a follow-up to the way that was presented as a cliffhanger in the previous issue, but it's revealed in a caption that's basically like, yes, it's Vera, were we ever even fooling you? It is wonderfully like, you guys all know who Vera is, which is the strangest thing, because if you weren't following X-Men, you would have no idea who Vera is, and it's not explained in this issue. It's true. On the other hand, if you were following X-Men, it probably was obvious from the first time that we saw that a woman with glasses was following Hank around. It was the glasses, wasn't it? Who else in the Marvel Universe besides Peter Parker wears completely round glasses? Yeah, I mean, certainly no other woman besides Vera wears glasses in the Marvel Universe. <laughs> I mean, can you think of one? Oh, now you're asking. Um, not at that point, because I was going to say the woman who becomes Moonstone does, but she's not even appeared yet. Right, it's just Vera. <laughs> that I stand corrected. While uh, Hank and Vera are traveling in the car with the comic greats of Marvel in 1970s, Juggernaut appears literally out of a hole in the sky. Yeah, Juggernaut's whole involvement in this story is completely random and bizarre. But it is following the trend of these issues where the supervillains are the least interesting things in the entire series. Yes, that's definitely true. Juggernaut literally falls out of a hole in the sky, is told by a mysterious voice, you should fight the beasts. And that's it. That's his entire motivation. Right. And meanwhile, Vera is trying to encourage Hank to get to Canada because if they don't get to Canada, the world will die. Which, again, slight hyperbole, although you get the feeling now that maybe Engelhart knows where he's going with this plot. Because the Canada and the world will die parts do actually pay off when you find out what's happening. Spoilers, though, you're not going to find out in this issue or in Amazing Adventures at all. Yeah, like if you followed this story to where it goes next, it would just have to be by luck. So Juggernaut attacks the Beast because he's been told to by a mysterious voice. And there is an amazingly generic fight with one exception. I'm not sure if this was ever a thing before, but Beast accidentally knocks off Juggernaut's helmet and in doing so takes all his powers away. I feel like this was like a misremembering of the X-Men stories. It's been a long time since I read the Juggernaut's X-Men appearance in the Silver Age. I feel like the thing with the Juggernaut is he doesn't get his powers from his helmet, but they steal his helmet so that Professor X can put the mind whammy on him. His helmet protects him from psychic attack. But his powers come from the crimson something of Citarac. It's a stone of some kind. Yes. Yeah, gem, a crimson gem of Citarac. But apparently not in now. Apparently if you knock off his helmet, that's how to beat the Juggernaut. Right, also he gets really old. He does get really old. Also at one point he tries to steal Jerry Conway's car. <laughs> and fits, which is my favourite thing. The Juggernaut is a very, very large supervillain. That is no sort of weightist attack. He is literally physically large. And yet he can fit into Jerry Conway's driver's seat. With no problem. So we can only assume that Jerry Conway is also some sort of juggernaut? Exactly. Jerry Conway is juggernaut size. Sadly, he doesn't get to steal the car. 
he gets defeated by the beast, he turns old, and then he vanishes. Because no one, arguably including the readers, cares about what happens to the supervillain in this. The strange thing is, that's the end of the run. Well, it's not really the end of the run because issue 17 is also a beast issue. Yeah, but it's not. I mean, issue 17 is a reprint of the beast's origin from X-Men's 49 through 53. It is a filler issue. And there's a two-page sequence by Englehart and Jim Starlin, of all people, which pretty much admits that. It pretty much says, hey, we needed something to fill this issue. Have some reprints. It's not really a beast issue and doesn't advance any of this story forward whatsoever. For the story to advance, we have to go to the Hulk. Right. Specifically, the Incredible Hulk number 161, which came out two months after Amazing Adventures number 16. It starts with the Hulk in Canada doing his Hulk thing, except because it's Canada, he's fighting Mounties in the woods instead of soldiers in the desert. Which is so great, right? They should get the Hulk in Canada all the time. Hulk versus Mounties, I am completely in favor of. (laughs) Well, this made me wonder how long Hulk hangs out in Canada for, because isn't this like 20 issues before Wolverine's first appearance when Hulk was also in Canada? Yeah, but I'm pretty sure he leaves and comes back. Because, and I might be misremembering my Hulk continuity. Apologies to all the Hulk experts out there. But doesn't he go to another planet altogether in between? I think you're right, yeah. I guess when you're the Hulk, you can go to Canada whenever... Borders are sort of meaningless if you <laughs> transport yourself by long distance jumping. He has no problem with customs. He literally just jumps over that line. Right. He's also wearing little pants with no pockets. So like they can't even search him if he does go <laughs> over the border crossing. The best part is while this is happening, Beast and Vera are stuck at customs. But Hank has a really interesting solution to this problem, which is that he puts Vera to sleep with a Vulcan nerve pinch. Like, seriously, he just reaches over and, like, touches pressure points on her neck and she goes to sleep. And this enables him to take off his human disguise and just fling Vera over his shoulder and rampage his way across the border so that he doesn't have to go through customs, leaving the car that they were driving behind. Like, you'd think he'd do that to get away from customs patrol, but no, he stops to talk to them after that. Right. He's like, hey, guys, I've left my car there. I'm the beast. Sure, I have a comatose woman, but there's good reasons. It's all going to be fine, you guys. And they let him away. Maybe because, you know, Canadians, they don't have Alpha Flight yet. They're like, oh, it's a famous superhero. I almost said A at the end, but no one (laughs) deserves that. So it turns out that the reason that Vera was desperate to find Hank and get him to Canada is that she's now involved with Cal Rankin who is a Silver Age X-Men villain named The Mimic, whose power is to mimic other people's superpowers. But his powers have now further mutated. What I feel like is an early example of a secondary mutation. Well, Hank himself has a secondary mutation, so it almost follows. Well, that's true. Of course, he drank a potion, so it... But it was a potion of the chemical cause of mutation. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not forget... Here's what I never understand about this story, or actually about any of the Beast stories. He works out the chemical cause of mutation, he creates an antidote, and the antidote is never mentioned ever again as well. It's true. Even though it was supposed to only work within an hour, you'd think it would at least provide, like, building blocks to some more potent sort of antidote, if he ever worked on it again, which there's no impression that he does. Well, but this story is kind of the point where he should, because he gets introduced to the Mimic, and the Mimic basically says, My powers have evolved. No longer do I suck the powers out of another human being. I suck their life force and I can't control it. I'm now in hiding in Canada because 
eventually my power is going to grow and I'm going to suck the life out of everyone on Earth. So he fled to Canada so that Canada will die first, he, I guess? He actually says that. He says, first Canada, then America, and eventually the entire world. <laughs> I love that. First Canada. That's what a villain says. <laughs> I've moved to Canada because they're dying first. Right. Well, I guess he doesn't know anyone in Canada, and all of his people live in America. So he's trying to get... But go know. somewhere else. Go somewhere <laughs> there, where there isn't a population. You know? He's like, oh, just going beyond Canada was hard, you guys. I got this really sweet cabin. I'm just going to hang out here. Sure, everyone around me is going to die, but, you know, this cabin's kind of nice. Well, I mean, let's be honest. This is the Mimic, and he's never actually been good at anything. The Mimic is, back in episode one of this podcast, Rachel and Miles talked about Silver Age villains that continued beyond the Silver Age. And that there were a lot of classics. The Mimic never did, not only because of what happens in this story, but because the Mimic is kind of a terrible villain. Well, I mean, basically, he's a villain that exists for every super team. Because there's the... There's the Super a, Adaptoid. Right, Super Adaptoid. There's a Mezo that fought the Justice League. Like, every team has a villain who can gain all of their powers. And, and it's that always... The mimic. Yes, because the story is always, how do you defeat yourselves? Right. Like, the Mimic was that, but whiny with it. You know, True. Super Adaptoid and, and Amazo both had the, I will kill you puny humans, because both of them were robots. The Mimic was always kind of like, eh, I'm better than you. I'll show you. Eh. Indeed. He did briefly also join the X-Men, but that didn't go well for him either. Because again, why you need Jarek? Totally. So we cut back to the Hulk, who it turns out is having his energy leached away by the Mimic without anyone realizing what's going on. The Hulk can tell that something is making him weaker and he's trying to find the source. And then he literally drops in on Mimic, Hank, and Vera. Literally falls on them, which is kind of wonderful. And this leads to a fight between the Beast and the Hulk, which I guess is something that had to happen once the Beast became a monster superhero, because eventually the Hulk has to fight all of them, as exemplified by his ongoing rivalry with the Thing. But it's an amazingly half-hearted fight. It takes up maybe two pages. And even then, it's more, I don't want to fight you, but I will. Right. And then the Mimic intervenes and basically uses the Hulk in a way that makes very little sense to commit suicide. Yeah, he sucks out the gamma radiation of the Hulk. He doesn't become the Hulk. He doesn't gain the Hulk's powers. Somehow he just sucks out the gamma radiation. Also, that doesn't affect the Hulk at all. Right. At the very least, the Hulk should turn back into Bruce Banner at this point, right? But he doesn't. It's very strange. Basically, he somehow sucks out the gamma radiation and dies. The Mimic dies, I should say, not the Hulk. And that's the end of the story. This also raises the question, does the Hulk just give off radiation all the time? If you're a power sucker, maybe? I don't don't know. know. I mean, you'd think... Actually, I do know. Because hundreds of issues after this, you will find out that Betty Banner died through exposure to the Hulk. She gets gamma radiation poisoning. Then I guess... So sure, yes. Now you know. The Hulk will leave you with a happy glow. So let's not hang out with the Hulk. Yeah, <laughs> there are so many reasons not to hang out with the Hulk. Let's just <laughs> let's just go with that one. But that again, that's your lot. The end of the Beast Run. Well, there's still all that stuff about the Secret Empire and Patsy and Buzz Baxter and... Okay, okay. So the Secret Empire stuff leads into three issues of Captain America and the Falcon that were published a full year later. And it pays off a long-running storyline in which Cap and the Falcon have teamed up with the original X-Men without Beast. 
that Cyclops, Jean Grey, Iceman, and Angel are all there. This follows up on an Avengers storyline from maybe a year prior to that, where the Avengers and the X-Men teamed up. The short version is, the Secret Empire, who, as we know, have infiltrated the Brand Corporation, are using mutants' brains to power their plan to take over America. Yeah, this seems really iffy to me as well, (laughs) frankly. I think that's exactly the right response. There is no real explanation of it. I should say this story is also by Steve Englehart. Steve Englehart does not forget a plot, listeners. He will stay with something until the bitter end. And this story is kind of the bitter end. The short version of this story is the secret empire is headed by number one. As we know, Linda is agent number nine. The agents are literally numbered in terms of importance. Number one is the president of the United States. The actual president of the The actual president of the United States. This story happens just after Watergate. Englehart, as a writer, is so disillusioned by America, he decides the only way to deal with this for himself is to create a story in which the President of the United States is literally the most corrupt person on the planet. When Cap discovers this, and he discovers it by going into the Oval Office of the White House, where number one is there, who unmasks himself, you don't see who it is, but Cap will later say it's the President of the United States. Number one kills himself in the Oval Office of the White House. I don't even know what to say about that. (laughs) So in the Marvel Universe, Richard Nixon was the head of the Secret Empire. And instead of Watergate happening, he shot himself in the head after trying to use the X-Men to literally power his plan to take over America, even though he was the president of the United States. (laughs) Just think about that for a second. You know, the problem with being president of the United States is that you don't get to wear evil looking robes with numbers on your forehead. There's actually an explanation within one of the issues where he pretty much says, That wasn't enough power for me. I wanted more power. But at one point in the storyline, you see a number of mutants tied to a Wheel of Fortune-esque device. The Beast actually is one of them. And then amusingly, the blob on a table beside them because he's too heavy for the Wheel of Fortune device. And the explanation is their brainwaves are powering the evil plan. One of the things that I think is interesting about this is that there's this real sense at this early point before the Claremont X-Men, before the Morlocks, before Artie and, you know, the kids of X-Factor, there's this real sense that there are barely any mutants because the only mutants that the Secret Empire is able to find are superheroes and supervillains that we've already met. Yeah, it literally, it's the X-Men and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, and that's it. And yeah, not like even if, all if the this same plotline had happened like 10 years later, the Wheel of Fortune would have just been a bunch of children with oddly colored skin. Sure, they would have created some new characters, but for some reason they were like, let's reel where everyone is. And actually, there's an explanation that the Beast is there because as he was leaving Canada after the Hulk issue, they captured him. So that right. is where the Beast has been for the last year. They make a point of saying that. Is there anything else about this issue that we really need to, no, to no. cover? Because it seems pretty complicated. I, I, I adore the Steve Englehart, Sal Buscema, Captain America and Falcon run. But that's all you need to know as an X-Men fan. <laughs> Apart from, you should read the stories. They're absolutely insane. But all you really need to know is mutant brainwaves can power evil schemes. And Richard Nixon realized this, tried to tie everyone to a wheel of fortune, and then shot himself in the head. The end. Can you imagine what history lessons are like in the Marvel Universe? Short answer, no. And then our president killed himself after being revealed to be number one of the secret empire. Moving on. But okay, so now we're done, right? We've finished 
Well, actually, no, because we still need to talk about where the beast goes next, which is a place he's going to be staying for a long time. And we also still haven't dealt with the Patsy Baxter part of the story. Oh, oh, okay, okay. So where the beast goes next is great. So the beast pretty much disappears for another two years after that? Well, he reappears two years after the end of the Amazing Adventures run. So that would only be like, I guess, a year after... Yeah, there's a year in the wilderness. And right. then he shows up in a place where seems totally unexpected until he realized that Steve Englehart is writing another comic. <laughs> right. So he is naturally going to pull all of his plot threads into his new title, which of course is The Avengers. And this happens in Avengers number 137, which came out in July of 1975. This interestingly, if you want to sync it up with the X-Men timeline, this is actually after Giant Size X-Men number one. So it's like that same period of time when the new team came in. But it's still soon enough after that that the Beast is able to appear briefly as a member of the Avengers in the Count Nefaria story that immediately follows Giant Size X-Men. Wow, I didn't realize the timing was that tight. Yeah, because I think I want to say that uh, Giant Size X-Men number one was May of 75 and Avengers number 137 is July. Wow. Apparently, Beast really, really made a hit with the Avengers. If they're letting him in charge of dealing with communications that quick afterwards, they were like, hey, we like this blue guy. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's blue by the time he appears in this issue. Yes, he is definitely He's officially blue. So basically what happens in this issue is that there is a shortage of active Avengers for various reasons. So naturally, Thor goes on television and announces that the Avengers are having open auditions for new members at Yankee Stadium. Don't you wish they did that in the movies? I mean, really, I would watch Avengers 3 if it was literally, hey, you guys, do you want to be one of us? Come to Yankee Stadium. <laughs> it just makes me think of the audition scene in the movie Mystery Men. <laughs> which is Again, basically a I would happily barbecue. watch that. <laughs> That's the Avengers 3 I want to see. So at this open audition, who else shows up but Edward G. Robinson, the actor? Hip and happening reference of 1975, Edward G. <laughs> Robinson who may be familiar to today's readers as the character that Chief Wiggum from The Simpsons is a ripoff of. I was going to say, maybe familiar to today's listeners, because I'm pretty sure Edward Chief Robinson is not familiar to today's listeners. <laughs> <laughs> no, but Chief Wiggum is. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, so Edward G. Robinson, it turns out, strangely enough, is not an old-timey actor, but is in fact Hank McCoy. Yes, because Hank has decided to have fun with his newfound rubber mask and costuming abilities instead of just making himself look like old Hank all the time. Which is kind of great. And Hank gives the greatest explanation as to where he's been since you last saw him. He says, Eventually it all got too heavy. I had to drop out of sight and come to terms with my new self. So I did. I let time pass however it wanted. I watched old movies, read some Castaneda, listened to some Stevie Wonder, and by the large, put my cruel fate out of my mind. After a while, I found I had perspective on things without my even working at it. Which is the greatest, weirdly coded explanation, right? You feel like it means something. Yes, actually, for the record, in Sean Howe's Marvel Comics, The Untold Story, uh, which is an excellent book that everyone should read. I'm fairly certain Rachel and Miles have talked about it before. But Steve Englehart is interviewed at great length for that book. And he explains what this means specifically, what he was trying to imply but couldn't actually say. Steve Englehart said, The Beast was a product in his second incarnation here of my life in California. He got older, he started listening to rock and roll, and quite frankly, he started smoking dope. 
Although we couldn't say that in the books. Isn't that the greatest thing? I love the idea that the beast comes back after a year. It's pretty much like, listen, I get really high, you guys, but I'm so much more mellow because of it. Right. Yeah. He's gone from being the sort of uptight nerd of the X-Men to being the groovy happening guy who's still very smart, but now his mind has been expanded. I gotta say, the beast that's in the Avengers is by far my favorite beast. I completely agree. I mean, I think my favorite beast might be the beast who is in the Defenders, but it's basically It's pretty much the same guy, yeah. Yeah. Um, He's just, he's so much fun. He's this wonderfully laid-back guy who's also, I mean, there's, again, lots of coded stuff going on in there. But you have this big, blue, furry, wacky stoner who's a swinger, who's totally just having fun, but can be very serious and get the job done when needs to be. Yeah, one of my favorite beast moments in the Avengers is when I'm trying to remember what writers run it in, but I know it's an issue drawn by John Byrne. The beast shows up late to an Avengers meeting and Captain America asks where he was. And the beast only slightly euphemistically says that he's been in an orgy for the past two days. Right? That's the superhero that America needs. Like, this is what Marvel comics were like in the 70s. <laughs> and all the better for it. But hey, we've not dealt with Patsy yet. We should really get to the Patsy stuff. So the Patsy Walker element, which was set up way back in Amazing Adventures 17, uh, 15 even, in 1973, finally gets explained in 1976. It's <laughs> Avengers issue 144. So Hank has been with the team for seven issues by this point. Patsy has come back and for a couple of issues by this point has pretty much said, listen, we made a deal back then. You have to fulfill your deal. And finally, it's explained what the deal is. And the deal is the greatest deal that has ever been made in Marvel Comics. Patsy decided that she would help Hank out if Hank made her a superhero. Right. In the context of this Avengers story, that almost kind of makes sense. But the idea that this was (laughs) the conversation that they had in that issue of Amazing Adventures is so bizarre. Everything about, again, this is Avengers 144. And for people who like to read strange comics, I'm just going to say it. You should read this because you get Engelhart finally laying out, oh, by the way, this is Patsy Walker, who was in Millie the Model. There is a flashback sequence. You get kind of a, what if Betty of Archie and Betty and Veronica grew up, got married to her childhood sweetheart, and then decided she wanted something more out of life, and that something was a superhero. It's the greatest flashback sequence, and it all happens because, again, no logic whatsoever, Captain America, Patsy Walker, and Iron Man come across the discarded costume of the cat, who later became Tigra, and ask Patsy, do you want to be a superhero? Out of nowhere! (laughs) Out of nowhere! And, of course, she does. And then sets in motion maybe one of the strangest and yet most enjoyable superhero careers of Marvel Comics. Definitely. So, I feel like that's pretty much the end of uh, the story. Yeah, it's it's a weird run. It is a six-issue run of a solo series in the 1970s that most people don't remember that sets up a lot of Marvel mythology. It feeds into Captain America, feeds into the Avengers, ultimately takes three years to tell from start to finish, and is kind of weirdly enjoyable. If yeah. And utter footnotes to the X-Men continuity. Yeah, I'm kind of a big fan of this run, and I think it's sort of It's a shame that for all the love that Hank McCoy has gotten in the years since that I feel like these stories are not remembered. I mean, certainly they have problems, but as far as stuff that was coming out in the early 70s, I think they're pretty great. 
And I should say that, sure, Carl Maddox dies in the first issue. And you're wondering, how then is he around in X-Factor issue two? And the short answer is, they just changed their minds. They just decide in X-Factor issue two that he didn't die. There's no more explanation than that. Which I guess is helped by the fact that nobody was rereading these issues. Exactly. No one really was reading Amazing Adventures in the first place. And this was before trade paperbacks or digital collections or anything. So you could pretty much just lie and say, that's what happened. Yeah. So Hank then went on to become an Avenger for a while, right? Yeah, he was an Avenger throughout the 70s. He didn't leave the Avengers until the early 80s when he moved directly from the Avengers to the Defenders. And of course, he stayed with the Defenders until like half of the team died and the other half went on to join X-Factor. Oh, we've all been there. (laughs) Indeed. And And of course, most of those dead Defenders are back now, except I think for Gargoyle. But that's beside the point. Oh, Garg, Isaac, you were one of my favorites. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, X-Factor is where Rachel and Miles are now. Yes. So so that pretty much catches Hank up to where we met up with him in episode 54, the first X-Factor episode, which I was a guest explainer on. Uh, But for now, let's go for some questions. Justin on the website asks, what is your best Beast story? Well, I know my answer for this. I don't know what the best Beast story is, but I know what my favorite Beast story is, and it's Marvel Team-Up number 124. Now, I have not read that, so you're going to have to explain that one to me. So that is an issue from 1982. It was written by J.M. DeMattis and penciled by Cary Gamble. And it is, of course, because all Marvel Team-Up stories are Spider-Man and someone else, uh, at least later in the run. And it is a Spider-Man Beast story. And they fight Professor Power, who's a pretty generic villain, But what's really great about the story, the reason it's my favorite, is that it deals with Hank's parents, Norton and Edna McCoy. The Beast's parents come to visit New York, and Hank and Vera meet up with them and take them out to dinner. And basically, the major drama of the story is that Hank's parents have not seen him since Amazing Adventures number 11. Oh, wow. So they've never seen him furry? Right. They've never seen him furry. Of course, they know that he is because he has been for years and they've seen him on TV with the Avengers. Like they've been updated on the story, but they haven't actually hung out with him. And Hank's mom has a moment in the restaurant when she basically freaks out and says, you're not my son. You're a disgusting monster, basically. Oh, and it's highly dramatic. And it becomes a story about Edna McCoy having to accept that this strange creature is still her son. And ultimately, she manages to save the day because Spider-Man has been temporarily taken out and the Beast is basically about to be crushed by Professor Power, who is holding a steam shovel above his head, about to drop it on Hank. And Hank's mom runs out and stands in front of him and says, You can't. You can't. This is my son. And basically convinces Professor Power, who I believe also was having parent-child issues at the time, to relent. (laughs) That is fascinating because Tomatis also wrote the Iceman miniseries that came out around the same time that also dealt with the parents coming to terms with their son being a mutant. That's true, yeah. It seems to be one of his ongoing themes. Of course, he was also writing... um, New Defenders. Yeah, he was writing Defenders, which featured both Beast and Iceman at this time. He was clearly in charge of the let's make this an analogy for coming out episodes oh, at yeah. the time. Yeah, that was a big thing with Jam DeMattis throughout the 80s, I feel like. That's wonderful. My favorite Beast story, and I am going to be bold and say this might be the best Beast story, is Avengers 178, which is a fill-in issue written by Steve Gerber and drawn by Carmen Infantino. 
And it is a solo beast story that is one of the most nonsensical things you will ever read. The overall plot is the beast is convinced that he has been accused by a supernatural form, that he is not living up to his true potential and has a crisis of confidence. As a result of this crisis of confidence, he is convinced to, strangely enough, considering what happens in Amazing Adventures, break into somewhere and steal something for someone. All of that is a cover story for a villain who then possesses the beast's mind and makes him dance, only for it to be revealed that this is all an FBI sting to prove that the villain actually has mind control powers. The end. All of it is very strange. All of it is very, like I said, nonsensical. But it opens with a wonderful four-page scene where the beast is out partying and he is confronted by an anti-mutant bigot. And the way that he responds to this is to shame the bigot into not exactly surrendering, but to backing down. Just by saying, that's right, I'm blue and I'm furry and I'm dancing with this woman and there's nothing wrong with her for dancing with me and there's nothing wrong with me and really the problem is you. And if you continue to have a problem, I will beat you up. And you're just going to have to deal with it. This is the way the world is. And he does all of it with a very comedic air and with a very light air. But it's a wonderful moment of, I'm just, I'm proud of who I am. And I'm proud that people can accept me for who I am. Moment that is really Hank for me. My favourite Hank, like I said, is the one in The Avengers. My favourite Hank is the one who has joy in his heart and mm-hmm. it and is very agree. upbeat and isn't the because later in x-men he becomes a very conflicted and very upset scientist um and i think that a lot of that is really set up in morrison's new x-men run where he suddenly becomes a very angst-ridden character and i'm much less interested in that i'm much more interested in the guy who through the amazing adventures run and then the avengers run has been through his dark night of the soul and has come out the other side and, you know, as Engelhart said in, in Marvel Comics, The Untold Story, came out of it basically by getting high and, and being, oh, I can relax about this and it's okay. And so this Gerber story, because Gerber, again, that's very much his point of view. He's mm-hmm. very much a supporter of something other than the norm and of that being something that's okay. And not only should not be judged, but like shouldn't even be something worth talking about, that you should just be who you are and that's great. And so it's a wonderful moment where the writer and the character are both in complete sync. And then that scene alone makes it my favorite beast story. Yeah, I like that story too. We do have one other question, which is not about the beast, but I feel it's an important topic to cover <laughs> while you're on the show, Grant. Oh, oh God, I saw this one. Rob Pawson on Twitter asks, I recall that Graham believes Maura McTaggart is the worst person in the Marvel Universe. Care to explain? I will explain by saying this. I don't think she's the worst person in the Marvel Universe. I think she's the worst character in the Marvel Universe. There is a difference. She's not a terrible person. She's a perfectly fine person. But she's so many things that I don't like, (laughs) all wrapped into one. She is the scientist who has a specialism of whatever the plot demands. She is a female character who exists to service male characters. She is a female character of entirely indeterminate age who will consistently be drawn as hot no matter what, and will always wear figure-hugging costumes. I mean, she's... The Proteus uh, story has her having an adult son, and yet she's consistently drawn as if she is at oldest 30? Yeah, that's definitely true. 
she exists to serve at first Professor Xavier. I mean, she will drop anything that is going on to help out Professor Xavier. And then when she hooks up with Banshee, she then becomes Banshee's girlfriend as opposed to an independent character in her own right. And she should be this independent character. She is, you know, in theory, a leading scientist and one of the leading experts on mutation. And that she's never given any real strength or energy within herself, despite that. And more importantly, and this is far less logical, I, as someone who was born and raised in Scotland, have real problems with Chris Claremont's Scottish accents. <laughs> really, really, really have problems. It's tough to explain, but when I was a small child and I was reading X-Men, I believed, foolishly, but I believed that Rogue spoke like someone in the South might speak like. I believed that, you know, Wolverine, maybe Canadians really did say Bob a lot. But every single time that Moira McTaggart showed up, I wanted to throw the comic across the room. It was so amazingly outside of my frame of reference that I had this visceral dislike for this woman. And every time, because there was a point where Claremont really liked taking either the New Mutants or the X-Men to Scotland. Mm-hmm. And it would never be a Scotland that I recognized <laughs> in the slightest. And there are points where he'd take them to Edinburgh. He clearly had been to Edinburgh because he'd make references that showed that he'd been there. But the artists had also clearly never been there. So it'd be like, sure, let's hang out in the Royal Mile. You know, let's go to this particular pub that I'm going to name drop. And it'd be drawn as if it's this weird rural town. <laughs> and I'd just be like, no, Edinburgh's actually a city. It's, it's a city. And uh, why, why is this? No. And so Mori gets all of that. Also, the fact that Mori seemed to start every second sentence with, oh, really got to me. <laughs> everything, everything about Mario McTaggart's Scotchiness really, really, really irritated me. So you add that onto the legitimate problems with her character, and I just am left thinking, that, oh, why did anyone do this to any character at all? I kind of wish she'd, spoiler everyone, stayed alive until Morrison could write her. Because I know that he wanted to, and I would have loved to have seen an actual Scott write Mario McTaggart and see what happened. Yeah. I have to say that as someone who was born and raised in the Appalachian Mountains, I have similar feelings about Sam and Paige Guthrie's dialect. See, again, as a whatever, 11-year-old or whatever was reading that, that, as far as I'm concerned, was entirely realistic. Well, right. I believed the same thing about Maura McTaggart and uh, Rain Sinclair's accents. We're ruining it for each other. This is terrible. (laughs) Everyone's going to be listening going, you mean no? That's not what it's like? It's not, everyone. I'm really, really sorry. Scotland is not like that. It has to be said, Scotland is arguably duller than that. But yeah, there is no Muir Island. There is no Legion on it. I'm really sorry. There's no Madrix. You're just crushing everyone's <laughs> dreams. I really, I'm a terrible human being. I really, really am. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Younts, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. And you can check out rachelandmiles.com for episode companion posts, art, essays, TV recaps, and much more. Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is 100% listener-supported and ad-free and made possible by Patreon subscribers. If you want to join those folks, you can find a Patreon link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. If you are wanting to find anything more that I appear on, then uh, the Wait What Podcast, which is at waitwhatpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher, is where I generally appear. We do three episodes a month, uh, myself and Jeff Lester. 
and we ramble a bit more than we did here, but we generally talk about comic books of all stripes. And my usual podcast, Into It with L. Collins, can be found on iTunes or Stitcher or at intuitpodcast.com. And it's only sometimes about comics. It's a pop culture podcast in general. But basically, I have a different guest on every episode to talk about something that we like, which is, I like to think, refreshingly positive, except when we occasionally get distracted by things that we hate. Elle's not going to say it because she's far too polite, but Intuit is an amazing podcast. And if you are not listening, you really, really should. Uh, Rachel and Miles are going to be back next week, continuing their coverage of Early X Factor. Where Boom Boom is once again a rare bright note in a sea of endemic misery. We have had a remarkably fun time talking about uh, Amazing Adventures and Beasts. And thank you very much to everyone who's been listening. Yeah, it's been really great being on the show. And maybe we'll get to do it or something like it again sometime. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.